So, I thought we'd begin our reflections tonight um, with this piyut, which is on your handout. Um, it's a piyut which was written by Yanai, um, who was a Paitan in the Byzantine era. And um, it always moves me, this piyut. We sing it in, in the repetition of the Amida on Rosh Hashanah. And I've, I've had the honor of, of leading a congregation in prayer on Rosh Hashanah. And the congregation in question is a small town in the middle of England who are now very, very good at football, but not so good at Judaism, um, because it's, it's Le- the town's called Leicester. We just won the premiership in football. If you follow these things, you call it soccer. Soccer. Um, there's maybe 150 Jews there in the town. It's where I grew up. And I used to go back there to lead the, the prayer service. And you get to this section, and you're standing on the bimmer, and the entire congregation join you in singing these words. And you stop and you think, as you're leading them, do they really mean it? It's phenomenal if they really mean it. He who grasps in hand the attributes of justice, and everyone believes that he is a God of faith, He who tests and examines hidden archives, and everyone believes that he examines thoughts. He who redeems from death and frees from destruction, and everyone believes that he is a strong redeemer. Hold on a second, there are people in the synagogue who probably define themselves as atheists. And they're singing, but but do they? I mean, they don't actually understand Hebrew, most of them, so it's not really fair for me to be... But it's, a, it's just a remarkable thing, and I'm up there, and when you're davening for the community on Rosh Hashanah, you feel this amazing burden of responsibility, and you think to yourself, you know, they really do. Deep down, they really do believe. Why would they be here otherwise? Something is calling them, is bringing them to shul. They really believe. Or maybe not. <laughs> so... The question is, how should we translate the word ma'amin? Do they believe? Have they seen enough evidence to constitute warrant for believing in all of these different claims? Have they read the God delusion and been um, and had some of their evidence kind of questioned? Do they believe? Well, the word ma'amin can also mean, well, it can mean many things, as we'll see. But emunah is is faith. So the question is, what is the difference between faith and belief? Is there a difference between faith and belief? Is faith just a species of belief? Mark Twain said that faith is believing what you know ain't so. Right? (laughs) So it's a type of belief. I think it was... um, Richard Dawkins, who said that um, faith is belief in spite of, perhaps because of, the lack of evidence, but still a type of belief. Well, oops, sorry. So it turns out, actually, there's an interesting machloket rishonim, an interesting medieval debate as to really what the word emunah picks out. 
So it says here in, in Genesis 15:6, after God had promised Avram, Abraham, that he would have a son, the verse says, Avram had faith in God and he considered it unto him as righteousness. In Hebrew, Vehemin Bahashem Vyachshavea Lod Tzedakah. Now, this is how Rashi reads the verse. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy One, blessed be He, Chashavea Avraham, considered it to Abraham, L'schut v'tzedakah, as a merit and a righteousness, Al ha'emunash ha'emin God considered Avram righteous because of Avram's faith. That's how he reads this verse. He's basing himself on the Mechilta, which says something really radical. So you find, Abraham did not inherit this world and the world to come. Other than in virtue of the faith that Avram had in God. As it says, Vehemin Bahashem, he had faith in God. it was considered unto him as righteous. The most famous writer to read the verse this way and to, to, to basically build the entire theology around reading the verse this way was Paul. Right? When Paul says in the New Testament, repeatedly, that what matters is faith rather than works, he, he, he explicitly bases himself on this Pasuk and on this reading of the Pasuk, right, which is from the Mechilta, it's kosher, it's not just Paul, right, Rashi. But the Ramban disagrees with Rashi. He reads the verse completely differently. And it's, it's difficult not to think that the Ramban may have been reacting to Christian readings of the verse. Right? I don't want to claim that Rashi, God forbid I don't want to claim that Rashi agrees with Paul that, that faith above works is what matters. In fact, we'll come back to that later. Um, what it might mean, what, what it might have been that Rashi and this Mechilta meant. How could it be that faith alone gets you the world to come? But that's what the Mechilta says. We'll come back to that later. But the Ramban just reads the verse completely differently. What does it say? I don't understand what this merit is. He's quoting Rashi. I don't understand what's so good. Why wouldn't you believe in a trustworthy God? We're talking about a prophet. Which is a, an allusion to a pasuk in, in the book of uh, Bamidbar. We're not dealing with some deceitful human being. We're dealing with a prophet. He knows that Hashem exists. He speaks to him. So if Hashem says something like, why aren't you going to believe him? And it says, This is a guy 
who had faith enough to slaughter his only beloved son. not, And all of the other tests. Eich lo yamin Here's good news. God said you're going to have a son. Meaning, if you're going to celebrate Abraham's ability to have faith, why do it here? On good news. So this is how the Ramban reads the verse. My wife bought me this, this thing that changes. It's pretty cool, right? So it says, um, There are two verbs here. Hermin and Yachshavea. He had faith and he considered it. Right? Now, if I said this, Shimon gave Reuben a hug, he loved him. Shimon gave Reuben a hug, he loved him. Who's the reference of he and who's the reference of him? The idea is, there are two verbs in the sentence, kiss and hug, sorry, uh, hug and love, right? Unless there's some pressure, you generally think that both times they take the same subject and the same object. So Shimon gave Reuben a hug, he loved him, it's Shimon giving the hug and Shimon doing the loving. Got it? Right? So likewise here, it's Avraham doing the faith, so it's Avraham doing the considering it to be righteous. Why? Says, says the Ramban, Abraham had thought that the promise of a son was conditioned upon Abraham's continued righteousness. If Abraham continues to be righteous, so Abraham thought, he'll have a son. If not, he won't. So there was always this niggling worry. Maybe I'll sin one day and I won't get what I was promised because the promise was conditioned upon my righteousness. In this Chapter, according to the Ramban's reading, God says to Abraham, No, the promise of a son is not about your righteousness. Whether you sin or not, you're going to get it. It's conditioned on one thing only, says Hashem my righteousness. And that's why Abraham can believe. Because Abraham can believe that he'll get what he's promised if it's only conditioned on Hashem's righteousness, because Abraham considers God to be righteous. So the Ramban reads the verse, and he had faith in Hashem because he, like the same guy who had the faith in Hashem, considered Hashem to be righteous. That's how the Ramban reads the verse. So what is for Paul in the New Testament the fundamental proof text for faith being a virtue, because Abraham had faith and it's called a virtue, is not a proof text for that at all. Because it's not a virtue, and it's not being called a virtue, according to the Ramban's reading of the verse. Okay. But in many ways, Rashi and the Mechilta are the more interesting reading. Because it's so counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive to think that faith alone should have got Avran all of these great things. So what I want to do is consider why faith might be a virtue, number one. Consider why Rashi might not agree with Paul, number two. And then come back to this beautiful piyut 
of Yanai and think how this all ties up to Rosh Hashanah. And we should be finished sometime by tomorrow afternoon. <laughs> so, the way I start to think about this is, well, is faith a virtue? Well, who is the source of all virtues? God is the source of all virtues. Does God have faith? Now, for some, that question would be absurd. Because if you think that faith is believing what you know ain't so, for example, or believing without evidence, or you might think you can't have faith if you have certainty. Faith is belief with the lack of certainty, or something like that. Then you're going to think that an omniscient God simply can't be a person of faith. But if you go back to the Piyot, the second line, the first thing that it says that everyone believes, Everybody believes. Everybody believes, right? You all believe this, surely. Everyone believes that God is a God of faith. Now, that is an allusion, that word, is an allusion to this verse in Deuteronomy from the song of Moshe, the song of, of Parshat Azinu, it says this, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faith, without iniquity, just and right is he. Now, there are multiple ways of reading this verse, and I should point out here that the word emunah can also allude to trustworthiness. Okay? And there's going to be a prominent reading of this verse that just says what it means is that God is trustworthy. And maybe that's the, the best way to translate this part of the Piyot too, and everyone believes that God is worthy of faith. He's trustworthy. But interestingly, that's not how the authors of the Sifri read this verse. Or at least, there are multiple readings of this verse in the Sifri. According to one of the Midrashim in the Sifri, that, that's not the way to read this verse. How should you read this verse? There's a lot of text in, and unless you have 20-20 vision, you're not going to be able to follow. So I'll just read it. The sculptor. Sayer, so it's playing on the word Tsur, rock, right? The rock, perfect is his ways. The Tsayer, the sculptor, who sculpted the world and sculpted man, as it said, the Lord God formed by Yitzer, man, et Adam. His work is perfect. What work are we talking about? His creative work, because he's a sculptor. So his, the Maiseberashit, his work, his creative work was perfect. And it says, it's very charming, his work is complete over all that come into the world, Ba'eolam. The Ba'eolam, by the way, are mentioned also in this piyot. And there is no place to wander after his attributes, saying, if only I had three eyes, if only I had three hands, if only I had three legs. If only I could walk on my head. I just love this list. If only I had a face that could turn all the way around. How nice it would be. 
No, you shouldn't say these things. The Torah comes to teach us his works are perfect. God has a design. Don't ask why it's this way, not some other way. His work is perfect. One thing I find interesting about this, Midrash, is it doesn't ask, right? What about a disabled person who only has one arm? Is he allowed or she allowed to say, I wish I had two? Well, maybe. Maybe it's okay to complain, right? God surely has his reason, but, but God, the, the authors of this Midrash maybe aren't blaming disabled people for complaining. Maybe. Because it's noteworthy that it looks like all of the people here are able-bodied people just wishing they had superhuman um, attributes. And you shouldn't. God's, God's design, at least for the species as a whole, is perfect. For all his ways of justice, he sits with each and every person in judgment and gives to them what is fitting for them. Elam God of faith. The context here has already been about God's creative acts, apart from here, all his ways of justice, which is difficult to kind of um, build back into the creation narrative. God, a God of faith. He had faith in the world and created it. Yes, God has faith. It's manifest in the fact that he created the world, says the authors of the Sifri. If God had not had faith, he would not have created. The creation is an act of faith. So this got me thinking. Along with my students in the Zoom Kollel, who we, the whole thing was about faith this summer, so this is, this is Chazara for some of them, but there'll be some new material eventually, maybe, a little bit. Okay. Um, got me thinking, how and why and in what ways might God's creative act be a faith act? So I thought I would go and look at the Midrashim around the creation. And I kind of um, focused in on three distinct strands which are going to be represented by three distinct Midrashim. So, creation is an act of faith, part one. This is a perplexing Midrash from the Tanchuma. When we say Kiddush, um, Friday night, we, we did an excerpt from the book of Genesis, and, it's, and it ends with Asher bara Elohim la'asot. God desisted from working on the things which he had made to make. And it's, just, it's like this weird ending. And says the Tanchuma, which he had created and made is not written, but which he had created to make is what's written. Why? Because the Sabbath preceded the completion of the work. The idea is this. God was busy creating stuff, and then all of a sudden Shabbat came in. And he was like, he had some stuff left over to do, but what can you do? It's Shabbos. Right? So there was stuff left over, la'asot, to do. But what can you do? He couldn't finish it. It was done. It, Shabbat came in. This should give us all a great feeling of, of uh, relief. Because we all know what it's like on Friday evening, and you just you, you can never get things done in time. It doesn't matter how late Shabbat comes in in the summer, you're never ready. How can it be that you're ready in the middle of the winter? Uh, when, but in the middle of the summer, you just you can never be ready. But God knows how you feel. 
Because on the first Friday, there was stuff he wanted to do, but he couldn't. There was stuff still that sucked. Says Rabbi Benaya, these are the demons whose souls he had created, but while he was creating their bodies, the Shabbat came in. So he left them alone. And they survived to the present as spirit with no bodies. Why are there demons, these bodiless spirits? God didn't have time to give them a body because Shabbat came in. Tough luck, they have to make do without bodies. And then there's this very strange bit, but it's important to my reading of the Midrash, so I leave it in. The Habba'al Hashayda, a man who ejaculates upon a female demon, Havayin lay banin shaded, will have demon children. Okay. What's going on in this midrash? I love this midrash, and this is how I think. This is I'm going to offer you my weekend. Even if you are a perfect being creating a world, you can't go wrong. You can't make a mistake. It may be the case that there's no such thing as a perfect world. Leibniz famously thought that this is, this world is the best of all possible worlds. But there are other philosophers out there who think that the notion of a best of all possible worlds is incoherent. Because bestness for worlds has no upper limit. The worlds can just keep, get, keep getting better and better and better. Imagine. The, the most beautiful beach that you can imagine. Could it have one more palm tree? Wouldn't it be a bit nicer? How about, you know, when do these things stop? When do you reach perfection? And it might just be that what has to happen if even a perfect God is going to create is at some point you just have to say, OK, I'm done now. I could keep making it better, but then I'll never actually finish creating. I will never have a red, a, a, an actually made creation. At some point, the sculptor has to put the chisel down. The painter has to put the paintbrush down. At some point, God has to take a plunge and just choose a world already. Which world are you going to create? You have to just take a plunge. And stuff will be left unmade. Things that God could have made, but didn't make. They're the demons. Because at some point, Shabbat just has to come in. And this is the same thing with human creativity. And that's what the demons of the ejaculation are a metaphor for. What are the demons? The demons are the, the non-actualized possibilities that God could have created but didn't. And every drop of human sperm in an ejaculation that doesn't fertilize an egg that's a possible human life that wasn't. It, there, there are demons. God creates demons, we create demons. But you can't create without creating demons. When you make a sculpture, it could have had another arm. But no, you put the chisel down. When you make a painting, it could have another, it could have had another just another stroke of blue. No, you put the paintbrush, paintbrush down. That stroke of blue that wasn't added to the canvas, that's your demon. Right? That chapter that you could have added into your novel, Amy, but you decided not to, that's your demon. Right? We all have demons. 
To create, you have to create demons in your wake, but what's more is you have to take a plunge. At some point, you have to take a plunge. Okay, creation as an act of faith, part two. Oh, what's the time? How much time do I have? Just, I'm not... Just keep going. Okay. Okay. This is a very strange midrash. Another one. Less strange, maybe, because it doesn't talk about ejaculation. Um, okay. Um, in the creation narrative, there's a very, very small discrepancy between God's command for vegetation and the actualization of the command. God commands eight pre oser pre. There should be fruit trees that bear fruit. And when the, the Bible says what happens, it says there's eight oser pre, trees that bear fruit. Big deal. Trees that bear fruit are fruit-bearing trees. There's no difference. It's the same thing, right? That's how you normally read it. No, not so, says the Midrash. The Midrash makes a big deal of the fact that Adam and Eve are both cursed for the sin of the apple or whatever it was, the fruit. But so too is the earth cursed. Well, what did the earth do? So the Midrash manufactures a sin but the earth did. Rabbi Yehuda ben Shalom said, she's cursed because she disobeyed God's command. The Holy One, blessed be he, said, let the earth put forth grass, grass, herb yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit. Just as the fruit is eaten, so should the tree be edible. God's, God's idea was, wouldn't it be cool, to have these like trees with fruit and you can just choose which bit to eat. It'll just all be yummy. The fruit, the tree, no difference. She, however, the world, did not do as she was told. But, quote, the land produced grass, herb yield grass, herb yielding seed, according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit. Not fruit trees bearing fruit, just trees bearing fruit. The fruit could be eaten, but not the tree. So the world disobeyed God's order. The world didn't come out looking like God's plan. Rabbi Pinchas disagrees and says, no, actually the world was, was really, she exceeded God's command. Because God only asked for the fruit trees to bear fruit. But the world really wanted to impress God, so it made the fruit trees bear fruit. And even the non-fruit trees bore fruit, right? Because the world really wanted to impress God. <laughs> Fine. I'm more interested, for the time being, with Rabbi Yehuda's position. Really? God commands the world to do something and it doesn't come out quite right? Surely that's heretical to say that. Right? God is omnipotent. God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't wish something to be and it comes out slight. God doesn't look at the world a little bit disappointed. Oh, I wish they'd done it a bit better. That, that's not the God of the Hebrews. I think what Rabbi Yehuda is saying is this. Rabbi Yehuda is a Platonist. He belongs to the um, school of thought that nothing that's concrete, nothing that's physical, can be perfect. To be, to be perfect is to be ideal, abstract, an idea. If God wants to make a world that's concrete rather than just an idea, he's going to have to settle for the fact that it won't always be perfect. 
And this is true according to Rabbi Yehuda's metaphysics, according to Rabbi Yehuda's philosophy. This is true even for a perfect being. Because it's the nature of concrete objects that they can't be ideal. To be ideal is not to be concrete. We could disagree with that. You might have a different philosophy, but that's his philosophy. But what it means is, that if you're going to create a world, if you're going to create anything, you have to reconcile yourself to the fact that it might not come out exactly how you planned it to. And this is true even without God, without the review of this metaphysics. As soon as God makes human beings with free will, we might do stuff that God doesn't want us to do. That's the risk of making free creatures. According to Rabbi Yehuda, it's even the risk of making trees. But that's because of his <laughs> peculiar philosophy in which concrete objects just simply cannot be perfect. They cannot be ideal. We'll do a little summary in a minute after this slide. But this is the final piece of the puzzle. Creation is an act of faith. Rabbi Berechia said, when the Holy One, blessed be he, came to create Adam, he saw righteous and wicked offspring arising from him. You can see the future, so there'd be good people, there'd be bad people coming out of this Adam chap. He said, if I create him, wicked men will spring from him. If I do not create him, how are the righteous to spring from him? What then did God do? He removed the way of the wicked out of his sight and associated the quality of mercy with himself and created him. What's the idea? God can see the future and he can see there's going to be some great people and some wicked people coming out of this Adam guy. Adam and Eve. The only Adam's mentioned. Typically. So, what does God do? He ignores the bad. He covers it up. He pretends he can't see it. And it leads to a really creative reading of... of uh, the first psalm in the book of Psalms. For the Lord regards the ways of the righteous, but the ways of the wicked shall perish. <coughs> they shall be destroyed from God's sight. God just won't look at them. He, he concentrates on the good. He destroyed the, the vision of future wickedness from before his sight and associated the quality of mercy with himself, and he created. God had mercy on his own creation, even before he created it. He recognised, given the last slide, that not everything would turn out exactly as he wished it would, but he had mercy and created nonetheless. An artist, if they're a complete perfectionist, will never let anything go out to publication. This is true too for a philosopher writing an article. <coughs> Sometimes you have to say, okay, it's not perfect, it's I'm never going to make it perfect, but it's good enough to kind of provoke some people to respond and it might, you know, it might have some worth as it is. But if you don't have mercy on yourself and on the work that you've created, it's not going to go out to publication. God's the same, says the Midrash. Rabbi Shimon said, this is the same idea. This is the same chapter of Midrash uh, Rabbah, Bereshit Rabbah, chapter 8. Rabbi Shimon said, when the Holy One, blessed be He, came to create Adam, the ministering angels formed themselves into groups and parties. Some of them saying, let him be created, whilst others urged, let him not be created. Thus it is written, loving kindness and truth fought together, righteousness and peace combated each other. Loving kindness said, let him be created, because he will dispense acts of loving kindness. 
Truth said, let him not be created, because he is compounded a falsehood. Righteousness said, let him be created, because he will perform righteous deeds. Peace said, let him not be created, because he is full of strife. What did Hashem do? Hashem had convened a council of angels, and the angels divided into parties. The truth party, the peace party, the love party, etc, etc. And some were for, and some were for against, but it was a dead heat. So what was God to do? He took truth and cast it to the ground. He just took one party out and just threw them out of the Knesset. Right? And I bet Bibi wishes he could do this sometimes, right? He just took a party, threw them out, and he, he gerrymandered a majority by throwing out one of the opposition parties. Right? He took truth and cast it to the ground. Said the ministry angels before the Holy One, blessed be he, sovereign of the universe, why do you despise your own seal? Truth is, is Hashem's seal. How can you do that? And this might be, this is how I read the Midrash, this might be Hashem's response. Don't worry, angels. Let truth arise from the earth. Hence it is written, let truth spring up from the earth. The idea here is that human beings, we don't always get things right. We're a long way from the truth. But over time, through the dialectic of disagreement, conversation, learning, debate, eventually we might get to the truth. The truth might sprout up organically from the ground. But what's most important here is that this argument among the angels, each party represents an attribute of God. This is an argument that's going on inside the mind of God. That's how it's explicitly presented over here in the first Midrash that I quote. Over here the internal debate is being projected onto the angels, but it's not hard to see that the angels represent here divine attributes. And if God is going to create, he has to, ha he has to allow certain attributes to win over. In this Midrash we spoke about mercy. In this Midrash it's chesed. Chesed. Okay, so to summarise, the act of creation is characterised by the rabbis in terms of the following three attributes. First of all, God has to take a plunge on a particular world. The world is going to create rather than the world he could have created. Number two, God has to reconcile himself to disappointment. Both of these things even a perfect God can do. Because as soon as a perfect God creates free human beings, we might disappoint him. And yet he's going to create the world anyway. Even a perfect God has to take the plunge because even though there's a perfect God, there's no such thing as the most perfect world. So he has to take a plunge and say, I'm going, to, I'm going to make this one. Of all of the acceptable worlds, I'm just going to... What, what should God do? He could just flip a coin. Flip, you know, I have to choose one of them. There's this famous... I, I spoke to my students will know this too. There's a famous parody called Buridan's Ass. Buridan was a philosopher who had an idea about what rational choice rational decision-making amounted to. And the parody of his account was imagine that Buridan's donkey is perfectly rational and very thirsty. And there are two barrels of water, A and B. They're both equally far away from the donkey and they both taste equally good. There's no sufficient reason to choose A over B. 
So what does Borodin's donkey, perfectly rational donkey, there? He died of birth, because he can't make a decision. No, sometimes a perfectly rational agent just sometimes has to make an arbitrary choice. Take a plunge. Just shoot for one. That's what God has to do. Even a perfect being might have to do that. So taking a plunge, reconciling himself to disappointment. But third is the exercise of chesed. Chesed is often translated as loving kindness, but I relate to chesed, following a number of mafrashim, a number of commentators, as something like a psychic power to break down barriers. When I say psychic, I don't mean like a psychic. I mean a psychical, a psychological power to break down barriers, whether the barriers are social, psychological, internal. This, for instance, makes sense of why incest in I think it's Ahrei Motto, it might be in Kedoshim, and one of the two times that the, the list of Arayot is listed, incest between a brother and a sister is called Chesed. But if you translate Chesed as loving kindness, that's weird. Right? <laughs> but, and there are, there are ways to go, right? Some even say Gesenius, one of the like, most prominent founders of kind of Hebrew lexicography, thought that that, that, verse, that use of the word Chesed was basically sarcasm. Right? You call this Chesed between a brother and a sister? Um, a number of people have struggled with this, but one way to go, hinted at by the Ibn Ezra, but taken up by later Mufashim, is to say, no, chesed is about breaking down barriers. Sometimes barriers should be broken. Sometimes not. Right? There are some social barriers that God doesn't want breaking down, and this is one of them, the brother-sister barrier. But chesed is just about a psychical power to break through barriers. Why does God need to exercise chesed to create? Because there's the internal conflict. Some parts of him are saying create, some parts of him are saying don't create. And if he doesn't have the power to kind of break through this kind of internal obstacles, he'll just never create. Now this one is the hardest one to square with the divine being, because you might think that a divine being just doesn't have the sorts of internal emotional discord that human beings might have. I don't think I'm going to say too much more about this because I want to move on. But if there's time for questions afterwards, people can grill me about it. Um, I'm convinced that if God is omnipotent and omniscient, he or she or it must have emotions. Um, I think there's such a thing as emotional uh, emotional intelligence. I think there are certain things that you simply cannot understand unless you're an emotional being. I think there are certain cognitive processes for which emotions are essential. Um, there's a really interesting book by Ros Picard called Effective Computing, in which he argues that computers will never be able to do certain jobs unless we synthesize emotions in them. And I think that, that the notion that God should be impassive and not have emotions comes from a kind of Greek prejudice that thinks that emotions are some sort of cognitive defect. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's just not true and unsubstantiated by empirical research. No, I think that there's grounds to say that God is emotional. I think there are grounds to say that an appropriate response to certain stimuli is sadness. And if you don't have that response, there's something wrong with you. An appropriate response to other stimuli is happiness. And if you don't have that response, there's something cognitively wrong with you. But furthermore, I think there are certain times in which countervailing emotional responses are appropriate. Something might be appropriately bittersweet. 
something might be appropriately tragic, tragicomic, in which you get these kind of countervailing emotions simultaneously. And if that can be the appropriate response to certain stimuli, I think that God himself can sometimes feel pulled in more than one direction emotionally. And if he didn't have chesed to overcome that, he wouldn't be omnipotent, because he would be held hostage to his own emotions. Chesed is what allows an emotional God to remain omnipotent. Okay. What does any of this have to do with faith? What does any of this have to do with Rosh Hashanah? I'm going to try and speed up so that we can finish before tomorrow. In the literature about faith, there are three species of faith that philosophers and thinkers focus upon. There's relational faith. I have faith in my wife. I have faith in you. I have faith in God. These are relational types of faith that take objects or people as their objects. There's propositional faith. I have faith that a certain person will win the election. I won't say which one, but I, I hope you know that the one I mean. Because she's much better than your turn. Oh, sorry. Uh, um, there's relational faith, there's propositional faith. I have faith that something is true. I have faith that such and so, such and such will transpire. I have faith that. It's called propositional faith. Global faith. Global faith is what's demonstrated by a person who doesn't just have faith that something's true, but attempts to organise their entire life around an idea or an ideal. That's global faith. You might have faith that God gave us the Torah, but for one reason or another, you might not organise your entire life around that, that article of faith. There may be certain emotional or psychological barriers stopping you, or there may be other goals and priorities that you have that just are more important to you subjectively. So global faith goes beyond propositional faith because it's to organise your entire life around an ideal or a proposition. What is propositional faith? I'm following here the account of Dan Howard Snyder, a philosopher at Western Washington University in Bellingham. Lovely place to visit. Um, I was there this summer. Um, to, believe, to have faith that something is true is to, to do four things. One is to have a positive evaluation of it. What does that mean? It's the sort of thing you think people should want to be true. Some things you want to be true, but you know you shouldn't want them to be true. So I put the banana skin on the floor and I really want someone to slip on it. I want it to be true that someone will slip on it. But I know I shouldn't want that. I just want it. I know I shouldn't want it, but I want it. To have a positive evaluation of a proposition is to think it's the sort of thing that you don't just want to be true, it's right to want it to be true. Everyone should want it to be true. That's to have a positive evaluation of something. A positive, cognitive attitude is basically to want it to be true. Not everything that you think you should want, do you want. Right? Um, people tell me that you really should like opera. Yeah. Right? You'd be much more cultured if you'd like opera. So I'd really like to like opera. But I just don't like it. You know, what can you do? I might have a positive evaluation of opera, but I just don't have a positive cognitive attitude towards opera. To have faith that something is true. Guys, if someone in the room has faith that Donald Trump is going to win the election, then this is what's happening. 
They think everyone should want him to win the election. They don't just believe he's going to win. They have faith that he is going to win. It's a good thing. I have faith that he's going to win. That means they think we should all want it deep down. They also want it. I might believe that Donald Trump's going to win the election, but if I don't want it, you can't say I have faith that he's going to win the election. It'd be really weird for me to say, I have faith he's going to win the election, I just wish he wouldn't. That's like an infelicitous speech act. Why? Because you misuse the word faith. Faith implies that your attitudes are lined up in this way. Number three, a positive cognitive attitude, which is just this. You've got to think it's kind of possible, plausible. You don't need to believe it. You don't need to believe it to have faith. Because belief might need a lot of evidence. I'm a philosopher, I, you know, I'm not sure I believe anything, right? Because I could, you know, we can prove everything wrong if you work hard enough. You know, do you believe? I don't know if I believe anything. How much evidence would it take for you to be convinced that God exists and commanded us to do all these strange things that we Jews do? How much evidence would it take before you could say, oh, I'm convinced, I believe? That might not be necessary to have faith. Is the story that the world, that Judaism tells about this world, the story that you'd like to be true? Sure, there are some difficult parts. There are parts we don't like. But taken as a whole, is this story a story? As you interpret it, is this story, as you interpret it, the story that you'd like to be true? Do you think it's at least possible? And don't you wish it was so? Maybe that's enough for faith. I think it was T.S. Eliot who said that he found that Christianity was the least implausible of all of the religions. And therefore he had faith in it. Did he think it was plausible? No. It's highly implausible. He found it was the least implausible. Did he have faith? Yeah, he had faith. Resilience. Faith, propositional faith is resilient to counter evidence. But this doesn't make us irrational in the way that new atheists think we are. Why? Believing what you know ain't so, that's irrational. Believing against the evidence, that's irrational. But faith doesn't even need belief. I start off believing that Leicester City are going to win the Premiership again. Because they're the best team. They're on the best form. I also really want them to win. So I've got faith they're going to win. But the, the last three games have been a disaster. So the counter-evidence is starting to mount. I no longer believe they're going to win. There's too much counter-evidence. But it's still possible. Still really want them to win. So I have faith they're going to win. Look, after like four or five months, it becomes a mathematical near impossibility for them to win. I might also lose faith. So I'm not, I'm not blind to counter-evidence, I'm not being irrational, I haven't closed the door on evidence, but faith is an attitude that's going to be resilient to counter-evidence, because it's compatible with so many different strengths of cognitive attitude. Relational faith. What does it mean for me to have faith in my wife? It involves a number of things, like the positive cognitive attitude. I have to be kind of positively disposed to her, to have faith in her. One interesting part of relational faith is you trust the testimony of somebody you have faith in. 
And in fact, you do, you do a little more than trusting. Depends how you define trust, and that's a whole other lecture. There's a story of a foster child. This was on This American Life some years ago. It's a story of an American foster child who, who was sexually assaulted. And she reported it to her foster parents, who initially trusted her and reported it to the police. But over time, she started to act in ways that were inconsistent with the foster parents' expectations for a victim of such a trauma. So they started not to, to think maybe she was making it up. And eventually this young woman was, was facing charges of, false accu of falsely accusing somebody of rape until it was proven medically that she, she was really a victim. And a paper by a friend of mine, Princeton, called Robin uh, Denrock, she, she wants to argue that her, parent, her foster parents lack the sort of faith in her they should have had. Why? Because what it means to have faith is to accept somebody's testimony and also not to be on the lookout for counter-evidence. Look, if loads of counter-evidence comes your way unsolicited, then okay, you might have to you might have to believe it. But these parents seem to foster parents seem to have been on the lookout for counter evidence. No, if my wife tells me something that she's seen, I just trust her. And I'm not like snooping around to, because that's part of what it means for me to have faith in her. I close the tribunal. At some point in your life you have to just stop gathering evidence and trust somebody. And that's a faith act. You are dating somebody who you want to wed. How much evidence does it take that they're a good person before you decide to marry them? Do you take out a private investigator? Do you, how, you know, how many years worth of emails do you get to read from their inbox? Do you, well, at some point you just have to stop taking evidence and get married. You have to close the tribunal. Finally, global faith. There's a beautiful, um, TED talk by philosopher at Rutgers called Ruth Chang. Really, really worth watching. Fabulous talk. She came from an Asian American family and was under a lot of cultural pressure to take a vocational degree and have a vocation. So she studied law and was a lawyer. But her love was in philosophy. At some point in her life she had to make a, a massive, massive career choice. Am I going to be a lawyer? Or am I going to be a philosopher. And she was weighing up the pros and cons. And she found they were kind of equal. And she found that the kind of choices that she had to make, the values of the one versus the other, were kind of incommensurate. She didn't know how to weigh up those and those. And she believed there was in this situation no formula for a rational decision. She feels that she was in a Borodin's ass type of a situation. And she went with her gut. She became a philosopher. Thank God she became one of the most successful living philosophers. And she's doing great. Might not have worked out that way. But she was deciding to organise her entire life around a plan, a principle, a goal. There was a choice of priorities and she had to kind of take a plunge on one priority that was going to take this organisational role in her life. God's faith. We said there are three elements to his creative act. All of them are intimately bound up 
with faith, as we've just defined it. How so? Taking the plunge. God had to take the plunge on the world. That's exactly the same as what happens when you close the tribunal or when you choose one's priorities, as you do in global faith, in relational faith. Reconciling yourself to disappointment is this notion of resilience in the face of counter-evidence. This isn't just in propositional faith, it's also in relational faith. If there's evidence that my wife is cheating on me, how much evidence should I assimilate before I'm ready to accuse her? I should probably set the, bur the burden of proof quite high. Higher maybe than objective bystanders, because she might say to me, Sam, you owed me the benefit of the doubt. What does that mean to owe somebody the benefit of the doubt? Because the idea is, if you have faith in someone, it's resilient to counter-evidence. You're not closed off to counter-evidence, not forever, but resilient to counter-evidence. Hashem himself is resilient to the disappointments of creation. There's an exercise of chesed. This idea to have faith is you have to have these cognitive attitudes, these affective attitudes, these emotional attitudes which trump others. When the rabbis describe God's creation of the world, they're describing a God who has faith. Hashem he'emin ba'olam benivra'ah. He had faith in the world and created it. What's all this got to do with Rosh Hashanah? The Ramban was translating emunah as belief. And if you're a prophet and you believe what God says, big deal, of course you should believe what God says. That's not a merit. It's not a virtue. Rashi's not disagreeing with Nachmanides about that. Rashi, I think, is just translating emunah differently. It's not belief. What Abraham did was not merely to believe. He had faith. And what did that mean? That meant he didn't just believe it was true, he wanted it to be true. It isn't just that he wanted it to be true, it just wasn't that he, it just wasn't just that he wanted it to be true. He thought that this was a good thing for the world. It wasn't just that he thought it was a good thing for the world, but he decided to organise his entire life around this promise. To make this thing that he believed the pole star of his life. This mission that God had given him to be the father of the Jewish people. <coughs> that is meritorious. That is worthy. Th that's the sort of thing you can imagine the, 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 the Mechilta saying, ah, it's because of that that Abraham inherited the world. Not because of something he thought. Because of how he felt and how that translated into his actions. He organised his entire life around this. When you sing this song on Rosh Hashanah, the whole man meaning, it's not that the people in Shul necessarily believe, but they want to believe. That's why they've come to Shul on Rosh Hashanah. Don't you want to believe? That? I know there's some scary stuff in this poem. There's some scary stuff in this poem. But don't you want to believe that there's a God who listens to your prayers? Don't you want to be believe in a God who's slow to anger? Don't you want to believe in a God who, who opens a gate to those who knock in repentance? A God who does good to the good and to the wicked? Don't you want to believe in that? 
Well, if you want to believe in that, well, perhaps you already have faith. You might not believe, but you might already have faith. Rosh Hashanah is the day that the world was conceived. Hayom Harat Olam. Not necessarily the day that the world was created. The day that the world was conceived. Whilst it was in vitro, whilst the world was, well, even more than that, it was preconception, whilst the world was just an idea in the mind of God, a glint in God's eye, right? Whilst the world was at that stage, it was perfect. It was perfect. There was nothing wrong with it. The trees hadn't yet disobeyed God's command. But that perfect world, that ideal of a world, is, so to speak, God's whole stuff. He's decided that the world will never quite live up to that exactly. Thank God God's faith is resilient, because he knows it's never going to quite live up to that. But it's his guiding aspiration. It's an article of his faith, that dream of a world. And it's what we return to on Rosh Hashanah. This is about God's faith, God's faith in us. God has tremendous faith in us. And we recognise that on Rosh Hashanah. We all believe in a God of faith, the Chol Ma'aminim, Shehu El Emunah. And we also have faith. We might not believe. I don't know whether we all believe we have faith. And there are three fundamental notions of faith. Maimonides had 13, but in the Sefer Ikrim, they're around, this is the last slide by the way, Sefer Ikrim, Rabbi Yosef Albo, um, they rounded down to three. And basically you can fit all of the 13 into one of these three. One, God created the world. Two, God revealed himself to us through the Jewish canon. Three, God is going to redeem the world through the Messianic eschaton. Those three things are the central things of the Rosh Hashanah prayer service. Malchion, Zichonot and Shofra. If you read uh, the Musaf of Rosh Hashanah, the whole Musaf is arranged around these three themes. For each theme, ten verses from the Bible are brought to illustrate them. One, God is King. That corresponds to God's being the creator of the world. Two, the Zichronot, God's memorials, they correspond to God's um, revelatory uh, activities. God remembers people and communicates with them because he remembers them. And the third, the Malchiot, the Shofra, sorry, uh, the, sorry the, the Shofra, the third, the Shofra, the throne of the Shofra. Rostadja Gaon explains that the Shofra is the trumpet that crown God king. So, I'll, I'll come back to it in a minute. With, with that, the, the Shofra have an eschatological um, um, symbolism because the messianic age is ushered in with the great shofar, right? right? We say in our, in our daily leader that God should sound the, the shofar of our redemption. So the three elements of, of, of our faith in God are right there in the, um, the Musafamida. God has faith in us and we come to God on Rosh Hashanah and He renews His faith in us and we renew our faith in Him and we crown him God over us. And that's what the shofar is. The shofar, according to Rav Sajagon, is the trumpet that heralds the coronation of God. 
Rosh Hashanah is not a day where we concentrate on our sins. In fact, we don't mention our sins at all, even though it's Yom Adin. Right? The Sfadim go even further than the Ashkenazim. There's one place in Avigdim Malkenu where Ashkenazim mention our sins, and the Sfadim miss that stanza out. This is not a day for remembering sins, because this is a day to concentrate on the world as it's supposed to be. Not on the world as it is. Let the world as it is, let, let that come into focus on Yom Kippur. But on Rosh Hashanah, when we're thinking about our faith, we're thinking about the world as we want it to be. Um, so that, I hope, will um, give new meaning to this piyot as you read it on Rosh Hashanah. And you reconceptualize Rosh Hashanah, hopefully, as a day in which Hashem re- renews his faith in us. And we renew our faith in him. And everybody can be said to be a mani. Uh, okay, thank you. I'll take some questions. Okay, yes. I was thinking when you said that chesed is what allows an emotional God to be omnipotent. Yeah. That deen also allows an emotional God to be omnipotent. That's right. That's absolutely right. When we talk about the Qurban Habayi, we say Hashem is in the morning with us. But then you would say, well... How does he... Here's a strange thing. Okay, so in, in uh, rabbinic literature, you've got... Rachamim and Din. In later literature comes Chesed and Din. But actually, for these purposes, it would be um, better to keep the di- distinction as Rachamim and Din and leave Chesed out of it. I'll explain why. Because on this taxonomy, on the way I'm understanding things, Korban Abayat is Chesed. Why is Korban Abayat Chesed? Because God must have been conflicted. The conflict wasn't between Chesed and something else, it was between Rachamim and Din. The Rachamim, the mercy doesn't want to destroy, but the Din knows it's the right thing to do. So there's conflict, emotional conflict. How does God overcome the conflict? He has this capacity to overcome conflict. That's called Chesed. Sometimes Chesed is really lovely. Like when a, a, poor, a rich person gives to a poor person, they're breaking a boundary of what's mine and what's yours. They break a boundary. That's lovely. Sometimes Chesed isn't so nice. It's tough love. It's tough love. Well, it's not even love. See, Chesed, on this account, is just wrongly translated as loving-kindness. Chesed sometimes manifests itself as loving-kindness. Sometimes it doesn't. It's about the breaking down of certain barriers or boundaries. Um, um, so that might help. But this is more, a more semantic thing of how we label these different things, right? Um, certainly, there's no Rachamim involved in the, in the destruction of the temple, right? But, but on my taxonomy, there might be a certain type of Chesed. I saw this gentleman yeah. first, and, and I'll come to you later. Yeah. The faith is eyes of itself. It's really an abstraction. It's a matrix of aspiration, insight, and goals. Granted, in human terms, where it can't be dealt with on a relevant basis to you. We obviously elevated mm-hmm. the hands of God mm-hmm. and, and for the ultimate wisdom of salvation. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's very nice. And, and, and I think that um, your notions of aspirate, what did you say? Aspiration? See, there were three great words there. Goals right. and 
Oh, you can't remember. Insight. Yes. Well, the insight corresponds to what I call the cognitive attitudes. The aspirations correspond to what I call the cognitive attitudes. And the goals correspond to this global faith notion, right? Um, That seems absolutely right. And I'm also willing to accept the notion that when we attribute these things to God, we need to be very careful because God is transcendent. Now, when I speak about God as a person, God as emotional, God as having faith, I'm speaking about God as he reveals himself to us. Yeah, that's right. And the truth of the matter is beyond our uh, descriptive capabilities. Yes. And I'll come, no, I'll come to you in a second. There's this gentleman and I'll come back. I, just, I, um, I, I was thinking about the word hope. But I guess hope is an aspiration. Yeah, that's right. So there's, there's a, a, bit, a lot of literature about the relationship between hope and faith. Some have argued that faith just is hope. Um, others want to write more into faith than just hope. Because you can sometimes hope for things which are immoral, or you can hope for things that you don't actually have a positive evaluation of, but you just hope for them anyway. Or, um, but certainly, the majority of um, the thinkers in the faith literature these days think that hope is at least a part of faith. That's right. It's very difficult to say you have faith that something's true if you don't hope for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. was that these were cognitive defects. And you don't see, before the medieval times, Jewish thinkers railing against the biblical descriptions of God's emotions. It comes in in medieval times. After sustained exposure to Greek philosophy, and when I'm reading the Mornavuchim, and he rails against the corporeal, the anthropomorphisms in the Bible, I'm all with him. But when he starts to rail against the anthropopathism, the, 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 the comparison between God's and humans' emotions, I step back a bit. And this is because, frankly, I live in a different age in which we don't have um, the same prejudices about emotion. And I would level some arguments against them if I could speak to them today. So the first is omniscience. Some of the medievals actually give up on omniscience because, um, or omniscience as you would know it, 
So, for instance, the Ralbag, Gesonides, thought that it was beneath God to know certain things. God only knows general facts. But, so he knows what humanity is like. He doesn't know you. He doesn't know me. Why would he trouble himself with such details? That would be beneath him. That's, that's how Gesonides looks at omniscience. But if you look at omniscience in the way that we tend to today, which is that God, God knows everything, then you're going to want to say that God doesn't just know me. He knows what it's like to be me. Right, so Linda, Zag- Linda Zagzewski, uh, a philosopher in Arizona, it's a wonderful book I, I heartily recommend it to people called Omnisubjectivity. She argues that an omniscient God would have to be omnisubjective. What does it mean to be omnisubjective? It's to know what it's like from every subjective perspective. Does God know what ice cream tastes like? Yes. Does God know what it's like to feel sad? Yes. Because he's omniscient. He knows, he knows everything. But I have some other arguments too. And I'll try to be very brief just to finish off. Um, why, think God, why think that God doesn't have emotions? I can think of three reasons. Okay? One is you might think, like William James and Descartes thought too, that you can't have an emotion without a body. That an emotion is some sort of um, uh, physiological phenomenon. Really, to put it crudely, James basically thinks that happiness is smiling. Pretty much. Happiness is a set of bodily reactions, one of which is smiling. Without the smile, there is no happiness. Right? So without the body, there's no happiness. Ha- happiness is a bodily function. <coughs> well, that's just wrong. Right? So, but if, if you thought that, then you'd think God can't have emotions because he doesn't have a body. God can't see because he doesn't have eyes. No. Right? So that's, that's one argument that I just don't abide by. Uh, another is that humans need emotions... Um, to do, this is called, uh, um, there's something called the framing problem. It's a, a problem in cognitive science, which is if you want to process a decision, there are often like an infinite number of variables. Well, how does a finite mind like ours make a decision in the face of an infinite number of variables? We use emotions to do it. Cognitive science has shown that we use emotions to make certain options more salient than others, which just kind of cuts out loads and loads of processing time. Now, you might think, well, God just wouldn't need that, because he's got an infinite amount of cognitive power, an an infinitely powerful processor. So the sorts of things that humans might need emotions for, God just wouldn't need them for. And that, I think, is shown to be untrue by empirical science, because... um, of the sorts of things that Ros Picard picks out in her effective computing uh, uh, book. There are a number of different cognitive tasks that it looks like it would be very, very difficult, if not impossible. There's a philosopher called, I'll, I'll finish my question, there's a philosopher called Anastasia Scruton, who works at the University of Leeds, and her big thing is the philosophy of emotion, but also about God's emotions. And she writes a lot, she believes in an emotional God, and she writes a lot. So, Google her and she'll give you a number of arguments. But basically, Anastasia Scruton. If I was to have an argument with the Rishonim, I would come armed with, with, with her papers. And also with Linda Zagzebski's omnisubjectivity. 
Um, but I say what I said to this, the, the first gentleman that I, I responded to, the first of the two gentlemen that I responded to, is that um, you might be able to reconcile the medieval view in my view. So it might be that God in his transcendence is above emotions and above all things, and the, 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 the medievals are picking up on that, and they're right. But there's not just God in his transcendence, there's also God as he appears to us. And at least as he appears to us, though he doesn't have a body, you never see a body. But you do feel, if you have a personal relationship with God, that's sometimes coloured by the hues and tones of emotion. And, and therefore, at least as he appears to us, he has emotions. You could say something like that. 